The Prime Minister says he wants more flexibility in the labour market, but the unions say flexibility is code for more employer power and declining worker conditions. Six months after employment law changes came into effect, in this Radio New Zealand Insight, Penny Mackay has been talking to both sides about the roles of unions today and their likely future. Yesterday, Tuesday, at noon, I called the representatives of the Watersiders to my room and I issued them what would be interpreted as being an ultimatum. Sixty years ago, the New Zealand Prime Minister Sid Holland issued a state of emergency to try to deal with the country's longest and most costly industrial action, the 151-day waterside workers' stoppage. For many, the legacy of New Zealand's union movement is one of confrontation. Others regard it as a source of social good. Unless work is resumed, normal work throughout New Zealand is resumed on the wall <coughs> tomorrow, that's today now, Wednesday, then a proclamation of, emerg of emergency will be declared. Until the 1990s, New Zealand's labour relations were shaped by the Industrial Conciliation and Arbitration Act of 1894, which provided a framework whereby workers, through their unions and employers, could negotiate wages and working conditions, as the labour historian Peter Franks explains. If they couldn't agree, they could go to an arbitration court and the arbitration court would make a decision, would make a ruling which was called an award, and as part of the deal, unions lost the right to strike. But it meant they could go into negotiations and be sure there would be an outcome. The quid pro quo for getting a guaranteed ruling on wages and conditions each year was that workers gave up the right to strike. But that did not stop industrial action. It was in fact illegal, but in the main went unpunished. In 1970, 12% of the workforce was involved in strikes. 41% of those were freezing workers. The General Secretary of the Meat Workers and Related Trades Union, David Eastlake, says disputes flared up quickly. We sort of worked by the seat of our pants if things weren't going good in a, in a particular plant on a particular day. You might down tools and take a bit of, uh, have a bit of a row with the boss over it and then uh, go home for the day and come back and start fresh the next day. When Peter Blomfield became the executive director of the Freezing Companies Association in 1974, he found that conflict sometimes emerged from confrontational union practices and an unresponsive management. You had a lot of um, strikes um, during that period. Um, it was a very stressful for management. The unions had the um, British uh, system of conflict and uh, some of the companies were, uh, uh, let's just say, rather authoritarian in their approach. Next year, and we'll cement the trade union movement. That's Tom the Skinner, the president of the powerful Federation of Labour, the forerunner to the Council of Trade the Unions. The force for good in this country. Thank you very much. During that decade, the Federation's annual conference held in the Wellington Town Hall was packed out for four days each year, with union delegates representing more than 230,000 workers. But opposition to the disruptive style of industrial relations was beginning to grow. I'm a Kiwi and I'm proud to be a Kiwi. In March 1981, after a series of strikes stopped international flights, the Cook Strait ferries and beer deliveries, a 22-year-old sales representative, Tanya Harris, led 50,000 people down Auckland's Queen Street in an anti-union rally. 
At the time, the present General Secretary of the National Distribution Union, Robert Reid, was an engineers union delegate at General Motors in Petone. He says the size of the rally did surprise unions. There was a bit of a shock amongst union people about about how big that rally was and perhaps if there was a, a, a strategical error on behalf of the union movement probably it didn't take into account enough um, the views of the general public about what the union movement was doing. Well, prices keep on going up, so workers need a rise. But when we ask the government, they shut their ears and eyes. John Key says... Everything changed in the 80s. Union power was crushed by the economic reforms of the fourth Labour government, as the Labour historian Peter Franks explains. What the Labour government did was to deregulate the economy. They floated the dollar, they started removing import controls, they um, first of all corporatised and then privatised parts of the public service. And uh, as a result of those changes, there were um, quite sizable increases in unemployment and um, left unions in a weaker state. You know, to be honest about it, the unions at the time, I think, were really a little bit like possums caught in the headlights, went, didn't went. Then in 1991, the national government introduced the most sweeping changes the labour market had ever experienced, the Employment Contracts Act. The Secretary of the Council of Trade Unions, Peter Conway, describes its effect. It wiped out the award system, so it really forced a form of individual contract agreement. Now, that is to put the worker at the most vulnerable at an individual level with an employer. And bear in mind, unemployment in 1992 went above 11%. The Act also did away with compulsory unionism. The changes have left a very different work environment for unions to operate in today. While 61% of workers in the public service are union members, just 10% of private sector workers are. A professor of management and international business at Auckland University, Peter Boxall, says a piece of legislation seemingly unrelated to industrial relations did significant damage to union membership. The Reserve Bank Act in 1989 was a major reform which helped very significantly to reduce rates of inflation in New Zealand. And one of the key drivers of trade unionism in any country is problems with wage price inflation. So the extent to which governments have got on top of price inflation has also changed the context for trade unionism. Once an employment lawyer with the trade union movement and now in independent practice in Wellington, Peter Cullen believes a change in the type of jobs now available has also contributed to the decline in union participation. We used to have about half a dozen large motor assembly plants in the Hutt Valley. We used to have two big meatworks and we had a Griffins and we had a waterfront with probably a couple of thousand water ciders. So the large concentrations of workers that we had here have gone. And it's when you've got large concentrations of workers that lends itself to trade unionism. Professor Boxall argues those changed workplaces have produced a different type of worker. People are increasingly looking to their working environment to grow as an individual, to grow through training, through greater job experience, uh, through career development activities, through being coached and mentored, and people really are driving themselves and in cooperation with their employers and supervisors. They don't necessarily turn to a trade union for that. This barista, Tanya, is an example of a worker who doesn't feel the need to join up. Oh, I don't feel there's the need to. And 
this small cafe I work in, I've got very good bosses, so if I had any problems I would go straight to them to discuss it. And you feel that you feel confident that they would be very, able to... Very, very confident. Professor Peter Boxall says, like Tanya, broadly speaking, most New Zealanders are happy in their work. By and large in this country, people are satisfied with their job, committed to their organisation and trusting of their manager. 70 to 80 percent of, of our workforce is broadly fundamentally positive about their employment relationship. And in, in doing the job they do, they exercise a pretty high level of discretion and influence. Andrew Little, the immediate past National Secretary of the Engineering, Printing and Manufacturing Union, or EPMU, says while there are people confident enough to negotiate with employers, he doubts they get the better side of the deal. A single individual worker does not have the means or the resources to um, negotiate from a point of equality, if you like, with an outfit that has uh, access to lawyers, to human resource managers, that is backed by a bank and by other investors, people of substance. The National Director of the Unite Union, Mike Treen, says if unions had better access to workers, more would join up. When we go to workplaces, and this is almost universal, if we can sit a worker down and we don't need more than five or ten minutes with any particular worker, generally two out of three will join the union. But the Employment Services Manager of the Northern Division of the Employers and Manufacturers Association, David Lowe, makes the point that restriction and access has applied only since amendments came in this April for union density in collective bargaining in the private sector to reduce by two-thirds really isn't about union access, it really is about uh, the fact that there's a very modern workplace which is emerging in New Zealand and uh, we all need to look at how that is affecting all our traditional structures. Since April, union organisers have had to request and obtain consent from employers before entering a workplace. The employer cannot unreasonably withhold that consent. But the unions say there are a number of workplaces that find ways to create barriers to meetings between worker and organiser, as Robert Reid of the National Distribution Union describes. Employers tell us that we can only talk to workers one at a time in a little meeting room that happens to be beside the boss's office, so ne no one will ever come off the floor uh, and talk to us like that. The unions say with depleted membership and fewer resources, it's impossible to visit every tiny work site in the country, even though they believe many of those work sites would welcome organisers. But very late hours, um, hard work, often not enough staff, and not exactly the kind of pay that you would expect for the stress that you're under. This young woman worked in a non-unionised Wellington bar. She had to ask for pay slips, she carried out the duties of the bar manager after he left and got just one 15-minute break or no break at all. After lots of staff left, we were quite understaffed and I was working 10-hour shifts with no break. If a union rep had come to the work site, he would have joined? I think actually probably would have. I'm sure most of us that are working there would have joined. With the change in access to individual work sites, Unite's Mike Treen explains how his union has gone about putting pressure on employers for higher wages for fast food workers. You may not be able to stop the stores from functioning, but you certainly can 
um, create a lot of fuss with a high-profile picket outside and targeting the brand of these companies. So we would have short actions, highly public, facilitated by the fact that a lot of these companies had their sites and high-traffic venues. Auckland University's Peter Boxall says New Zealand has developed a culture of consultation between worker and employer that has diminished the need for such campaigns. There's actually a higher level of consultative committees in the New Zealand workplace than there is collective bargains. And you know, people are very positive about that. They think these committees generally are working on important issues. I think one of the things that has helped that climate to grow has been the growth of health and safety legislation, which has required people to sit down and talk about health and safety issues. Uh, and it's quite possible that out of that kind of dialogue, people have said, well, let's start talking about some other things. But the Council of Trade Unions insists workers are better off inside a strong union movement. In an attempt to reach more workers, the council is trying new ways of doing things, such as the recently launched Together. The president of the council, Helen Kelly, describes what's involved. Union members will be able to join up their families for a dollar a week on top of their union fee and um, together we'll also offer membership to workers outside of the tr traditional sectors. So we've had um, you know, applications from farm workers, big group of ununionised workers, from taxi drivers, from vets interestingly, and um, from a whole range of people who are outside um, normal union coverage. And the council is also hanging its hat on a law change it's proposing that will allow hard-to-reach workers to have the support of workers in the same sector throughout the country, as Helen Kelly explains. If um, supermarkets and, and food retail stores across the country were bargaining collective agreements, then the standards out of those collectives would be expanded through an industry document for food retail and include the four-square worker in Kaitaia. So when she goes to work, she will find a collective agreement and she'll have the choice of either being covered by that or once again uh, going on to an individual as she does now. But the Minister of Labour, Kate Wilkinson, says that policy runs counter to the flexible approach the government wants. She says forcing a dairy owner in Timaru to pay the same rates as a supermarket in Ponsonby will only result in jobs being thrown on the scrap heap. We're standing by the workers that are unfairly dismissed and we will make sure they know their rights, make sure their stories are told and make sure that John Key is shamed, shamed for his story. In August last year, the Council of Trade Unions led fairness at work rallies in each of the main urban centres. Demonstrators protested against employment law changes affecting sick leave, holiday pay and most contentiously the 90-day trial period that all came into effect in April this year. The trade unions say the workplace changes are an attack on workers' rights, but the Minister of Labour, Kate Wilkinson, says that's a political stance. Basically, I don't think they like it because we're a national government, so anything we do they won't like, and, and, and it, I think it's as simple as that. But Labour Party hopeful Andrew Little supports claims that unions are being undermined. At the moment we have, we have a government that is frankly hostile towards unions and to um, workers' rights, and that has an impact on the way people see unions and whether or not they're prepared to stand up and assert their rights. A clear ideological divide. The Brass Razu Solidarity Band busking on the streets of Wellington last year for striking bus drivers. So are workers' conditions today better or worse than the era before the Employment Contracts Act? The Council of Trade Unions' Helen Kelly says definitely worse.
I started my life as a service station attendant on an award with overtime, with increases in pay over the years, with restrictions on hours of work and with regular hours. You know, there wouldn't be a service station worker in the country probably uh, that has that level of protection anymore. And the union movement says one of its greatest worries now is the casualisation of jobs. Helen Kelly says workers end up on the back foot. For example, in construction where they employ a lot of people as labour hire contract only, the only benefit of that um, is to the employer who doesn't have to pay all the different benefits, ACC and um, minimum wages and things like that. For the contractor, there's very little benefit out of that arrangement, and that, but they are effectively denied um, work rights. Richard Wagstaff from the Public Service Association says with the decline in trade union influence, there's also been a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. If you look at um, you know, what's been happening in the Western world in the last 30 years, there's been a dramatic, and New Zealand's no exception, a dramatic increase in inequality between workers and um, the owners of capital. Unions stand very strongly against that trend, but, but there aren't too many other voices out there who do. The Minister, Kate Wilkinson, however, sees a much more positive landscape. I think the employment market is more sophisticated. I think that, that workers are uh, more aware of their rights. Uh, some of that, I'd have to say, is, is due credit to the unions. Um, and, and I think there is a lot more openness. I think with technology that you can just go to, for example, the Department of Labour website and there are a lot of questions that are answered there. You can actually do your own employment contract builder. And so I think technology's helped as well. Now, the Prime Minister says he wants to see more flexibility in the labour market, as Kate Wilkinson explains. What we want is, a, is an environment where employers have confidence to take on employees and employees can get a job, um, and we want that flexibility. If it's too tough for businesses to take on employees, they won't do it, and so we think it's a win-win. But the Public Service Association's Richard Wagstaff says one person's flexibility is for another the opportunity for exploitation. He says the arguments that changes were needed for increased employment and productivity have so far failed to come true. The Employment Contracts Act was seen as a vehicle for more flexibility, but that didn't deliver higher productivity. It delivered lower wages and it delivered um, less investment in skill development for workers. So it will give employers more power over workers if they manage to break down unions and break down collective bargaining. For the Employers and Manufacturers Association's David Lowe, flexibility means changing a law that allows collective agreements to be negotiated only between employers and unions. Around whether an individual worker or group of workers can talk collectively with the employer directly or whether they have to talk through a union. And our view is that employees should frankly have the choice. If they want to go through a union, they can. If they want to band together and go and talk to the employer directly, then they should be able to do that. And David Lowe is also opposed to laws that prevent employers passing on union-negotiated terms and conditions to non-union people, except through a proper bargaining process with each employee. Large businesses in New Zealand, and some I know, have got maybe a 15% union membership rate. Well, they will then bargain with the union, they'll reach a settlement, and then that business has to go through one-on-one -on -one discussions with the several thousand employees before they're able to pass on those same terms and conditions. And that is a very unproductive dance. Unions argue that employees shouldn't profit from union-negotiated deals without contributing to the process. The Chief Executive of Business New Zealand, Phil O'Reilly, argues flexibility is needed because increases in productivity will emerge from individual work sites, not through any sort of national agreements.
individual employers, individual employees can get along and work out what's best for them in that quest for comp- competitiveness and productivity. Uh, what unions appear to want, though, is some sort of national frame. Well, that's just not going to work if you want a competitive, uh, productive economy. Frankly, that's back to the 70s. And employers would reject the idea that just because you have more flexibility in the way in which you carry out your labour relations framework, that that somehow means that workers lose. Professor Ray Markey from the Auckland University of Technology's Work and Labour Market Institute says conservative politicians throughout the West have legislated over the last two decades to wind back the power of the unions and diminish collective bargaining. I think conservative politicians genuinely believe in in the main that they're making the labour market more flexible and that this assists productivity and performance in workplaces. The problem is there's virtually no evidence in New Zealand, for example, or even overseas, that a reduction in the coverage of collective bargaining or in the coverage of trade unions will improve workplace performance. In fact, there is some evidence which goes the opposite way. But the minister, Kate Wilkinson, says it's more complex than that. I think you have to look at a lot of different reasons uh, for what's happening out there, and flexibility is not necessarily total deregulation. And if we can have an employment market that is flexible, that does encourage uh, employers to take on staff and give staff um, and employees the opportunity to get a job, um, then we think that's a good thing. The unions point to the high productivity of very unionised countries such as Sweden. Andrew Little's successor at the Engineering, Printing and Manufacturing Union, Bill Newson, says New Zealand's productivity and wages were pretty much on par with Australia before the Employment Contracts Act in 1991. What happened in 1991? The Employment Contracts Act. Wage bargaining was dismantled. Workers were driven into individual employment agreements, our wages plummeted, our productivity stagnated. Australia retained its union rights and award system. Their productivity continued to increase and their wages continued to increase. And Bill Newson thinks it's ironic that 30,000 New Zealanders a year head to the higher wages of a strongly unionised Australia. But the minister, Kate Wilkinson, dismisses the connection. They have different conditions over there. Uh, They have different climates over there. I mean, we've lost a few just from the earthquake, and I don't think you can blame the national government or the unions, actually, for the earthquake. So there are a lot of different reasons why people will go to Australia, um, and there are a lot of reasons why they come back as well. And I think that, you know, there are pros and cons of both countries. So you don't accept that the majority of people are going over there for... Uh, better conditions and higher wages? I think some are, uh, uh, and I think some stay here for lifestyle and other reasons. The Labour Party's Labour spokesperson, Darian Fenton, says strong unions, such as those that operate in Australia, are a positive buffer in the employer-employee relationship necessary for productivity improvements. Unions bring a whole lot of discipline to a workforce that isn't there if you're trying to deal with individual workers. Uh, They bring experience as well. And I think if you look at any of the smart unions in New Zealand, the Dairy Workers Union, the um, Engineers Union and so on, they have worked very strongly with employers to improve productivity uh, and have been very successful at that. But Business New Zealand's Phil O'Reilly says it depends on the union. Sometimes unions are very, very good for that. I've seen situations where... Uh, you know, very good workplace relations that involve union officials at the very front of that, uh, some really inspirational uh, activity that you see go on from time to time. 
sometimes, uh, depending on the nature of labour relations difficulties at a workplace, unions can stand absolutely in the way of that productivity. The Employers and Manufacturers Association's David Lowe also believes that some unions get in the way of a closer relationship between employers and employees. There will be nuances within their own workplace and there might be uh, things about the starting times, the uniforms and uh, footwear and there's all sorts of things that come into play that are really between an individual worker or the group of workers and the employer and they're very workplace based. And then there's the more national type issues uh, which might be around uh, trial periods, and union access and so forth. They can uh, complicate uh, the relationships. Professor Ray Markey from the Auckland University of Technology says there's a contradiction in policy in New Zealand. A desire for higher productivity, but an established model of trying to do that based on long hours and low wages. A low wage environment, which we have in comparison with Australia and other developed countries, is a disincentive to productivity because it's a disincentive for employers to invest in new technology and in more efficient ways of doing things. Why would you if you can get cheap labour? So what of the future of unions? Is the decline in membership leading to their eventual oblivion? Lala Puasenele from the Service and Food Workers Union at Wellington Hospital says the union will always be the voice of workers like her. Not only to our employers, to the government, for what we want because some of us got a lot to say but we're so nervous, too scared to speak up then we can raise our concern to our union leaders and then they can take the issues to the uh, government. And the employment lawyer Peter Cullen says there'll always be a role for unions because there'll always be friction between some employers and employees. I see the whole mix in this work of employers who are outstanding, commendable, to people who are complete bastards. The same with the workers. They're no different either. You get the whole range of humanity from people who are loyal, work loyally for someone for years, will put in the extra time, don't charge for everything, uh, to people who are complete mongrels and uh, rip the place off all the time. Professor Ray Markey says even with reduced membership, unions can punch above their weight, particularly when they join with other groups, as has happened in the United States. Where they've built alliances with church groups, with non-government organisations, uh, aid organisations, to support particular groups of workers who are especially disadvantaged, like janitors, hotel cleaners, and they've had considerable success. Labor's Darian Fenton says no one on the left is talking about going back to awards or compulsory unionism when or if the Labor Party is back in government. We've gone from a very strong manufacturing union base to a growing part of our industries being in the service sector, which are not so highly unionised. Work is much more part-time and casual than it used to be. We do have to be realistic about what the current labour market is. That doesn't mean that you can't strengthen collective bargaining. Kate Wilkinson says the future of unions is entirely up to them. Unions have, have a place um, and they, they're really an important conduit between the workers and the employers. Um, but you know, they, they, their membership is declining uh, and, and they have to look at why that is and they have to work out what their own relevance is to their members. And the engineering, printing and manufacturing unions Bill Newson sees the future for unions as bright but also challenging.
we've been put on notice by this government uh, that it's going to get tougher, so we can't be in, under any illusions about that. You look, it's always hard for unions. That's why unions were established, and that's why it's called the struggle. That Radio New Zealand Insight was written and presented by Penny Mackay. It was produced by Philippa Tolley. Technical production was by Leanne Smith.